Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, where as your host, I, Dr. Jim Hoven, get a chance to meet with cool people doing amazing things and literally making a difference every single day in the various occupations, hobbies, and situations that they're involved in and that they choose. Today, I am so excited to bring to you a personality unlike any I've quite ever met, someone who's amazing in every facet of the word, I met her through work and now we've become just such great friends that I had to have you guys hear her story, what she's doing and what she's involved with now. This is the incomparable Cozy Stone. Cozy, welcome to the show. Oh, you're so sweet. Good morning and thank you for having me. Absolutely. I got to start out a little bit with the, from, from the beginning here, talking about your beautiful, unique, incredible hair. Tell, give, me, give us the story about your choice of mohawk versus any other kind of hawk when it comes to your, your hairstyle, because it's so cool, so unique and refreshing. I, I just want to hear that story. Okay, so hair for me as a woman of color uh, has always been just a pain in my you-know-what. And as a little girl, uh, this is how it started. To go to church on Sunday, I had to come in early and couldn't play Saturday night, and I hated it. So as I got older and I came, became more into myself, in 1960, 72, I cut it down to a very tiny afro. My mother had an heart attack. Oh, woman is a, a hair is a woman's crown and glory. When the barber turned me around, I felt gorgeous. Fast forward, I kept getting it shorter and shorter. At that time, they called it a cabotis, I think, or something like that. Moved to Los Angeles, had a new barber. Um, we kept cutting it, cut cording. I went, and you're going to love this. At that time, I was a legal secretary. On my lunch hour, I went to the barber and I said to my barber, do you think I'd look good as a bald woman? He said, I think you'll look gorgeous. I said, well, shave it off. I'm working for a corporate law firm. (laughs) On my lunch hour, hour. I shave all my hair off. How did it it go when you got back to the office? Well, first, get off the elevator. I... uh, Look at the receptionist, who was a black woman, and I looked at her face, and I knew it was going to go downhill from there. <laughs> I sit at my desk, and I remember the gentleman was, oh, he must have been 6665, both ways. And he walked through, and he looked down at me. I could see it on his face. They allowed me to come back the next day, brought me into the office with the accountant, and they tried to tell me that they were letting me go because of my work. And I looked at them with my big smile and I said, that's BS. They're letting me go because of my hair. No one gets rid of me because of my work. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to pad my check so I don't sue you. And I'll walk walk out with a happy face. Went away, kept my bald head, put wigs on, got jobs. Uh, The Mohawk in 1980, I was just tired again. Uh, I just wanted a new look. I was going home. I wanted a new look. I said, I think I'll do a mohawk. Mr. T had a mohawk. I liked his mohawk. I think I look good. And pretty much that started it. Time went by. I I did braids. I did twists. And then I told myself when I turned 60, I wanted to have a gray mohawk. Well, it's taking its time. (laughs) going to be gorgeous when it's all gray. (laughs) Um, All my friends are running around dyeing their hair and I want their gray. Yes. 
So I I love my hairstyle. I feel I feel very pretty with it. I feel very attractive. Uh, it's easy. You know the expression. I won't say the s h i t word and shower, right? S blank and shower. Well, that's me. I'm a quick date. <laughs> you're you're awesome date, cozy. You are amazing because of your just your. Incredible personality. I'm sure that all of our viewers and listeners have already sensed, like, man, there's something different about this woman. I want to take us back in time to when you were a child. Tell me what kind of what kind of little girl were you? Now, again, you know, you said that your mohawk when you turned 60, you wanted it to to go gray. It, that's been, you know, that wasn't last year when you turned 60. And I won't share your age unless you want to. But in the meantime. Time, life was different then when you were a little girl. You know that was many, you know, several decades ago now. What were you like, and what was your personality in in that era like? Were you well received? Were you seen as like why is she so loud or outgoing or gregarious? Take me back to your childhood. Wow, that's a great question. What I remember from the day. They brought me into this world was being loved and accepted. My uh, my mom loved me. My cousins loved me. My friends seemed to love me, and just as importantly, I came here with love and respect for myself. So, as a little girl, <laughs> I was uh, painfully honest because I didn't know better. That's that was my mother's job to tell me, you don't say that. Uh, of course, I came along during the civil rights movement, and um, and blacks going about getting more of what we deserve, and I never took it as if I wasn't going to get what I deserved in this world. I watched it. I understood what my ancestors and people before me did, died, sacrificed for my betterment, and what I did is I looked at it and said, "Well, I owe them." The respect of getting a good education, being a good citizen, and going for everything and anything I want in this world, and I really don't understand this color thing. It never mattered to me, and I lived in an environment where it was and it was, and why do this and why do that? Well, I don't look and had the wherewithal to not look at people as color, because at the end of the day, I really didn't have people looking at me from my color. If anything, black people wanted me to pay attention to what they thought was a detriment, and it never was a detriment to me. When I was introduced to "quote unquote" a Caucasian world, I was well accepted, and I believe I was well accepted because it's hard to look at me and be around me and think I give a hoot what you think. <laughs> Amen to that. That's an amazing, amazing、um, backstory because. I think it sets the stage for where your life has gone, Cozy. You you did not take a traditional、um, path for. I even think for any woman, no less a, a woman of color, with respect to where you took your career. And and I want to kind of go through it as we lead up to the incredible work you're doing today, because it all is pieces of a beautiful puzzle for you. And and so I know for a while, and a great while, fitness was all about what kind of was your central theme, where you were. You know, at a time, I think it was in the '80s, right, when you were being a, a, a bodybuilder at the highest levels. And when you look at that, was there was there a lot of、uh, black women that were bodybuilders at that time,、um, or 
and, and so in that in that era was that something that really helped you build confidence because you have this personality. Now all of a sudden you put the physical package of all this beautiful symmetry and muscle and leanness. What was that part of, of your journey like? Yeah, well, that's way before bodybuilding. Uh, I started working out when I was 13 years old. And I'll tell you my true but funny story. <laughs> One day I was sitting on the toilet. Yes, the commode. <laughs> and I looked down and I didn't like the way my thighs looked. Now, here's the reality. Everyone's thighs spread when they sit down. <laughs> so I'm probably not realizing I'm uh, uh, becoming a young lady. I've got hormones. My body's changing just a bit. I was never fat. And I just didn't like the way my legs look when I sat on the toilet. And I started working out with Jack Elaine in front of the television before going to high school in ninth grade. Wow. And Jack Lane, for those of you that have never heard that that man's name, right? He was he was a he was a pioneer as as the first kind of TV fitness guy. And uh, you can look him up. He he had he wore these one-piece jumpsuits with racing stripes on them and and all kinds of stuff. Interesting backstory. That guy was a chiropractor um, as part of his yeah, yeah, as, as part of his training, and he just became known as a fitness guy. So you're training with Jack Lane in front of the TV before going to high school. With a chair, that's all you needed. That's all. That's all you needed was a chair. So as Jack the dog, oh, I love the dog. He had a white German shepherd. I love white German shepherds, probably how I fell in love with white German shepherds. And all you needed was a chair. And every day exercise was around that dog on chair. Well, it's convenient, it's inexpensive, and it fit my time schedule. And I was in front of that television every day. And as I kept exercising, I watched my body change. And I said to myself, well, one and one makes two. That was as simple as that. If you do this, you'll get that. If you go to school, you get a better education. If you're kind, you'll get that. Everything seems to, for me, make sense. I started um, with Jacqueline. I then got hired as the first person, uh, calisthenic, let's give that word out there, right? Yes. Calisthenic instructor at the first Jacqueline gym in New York City on 59th Street. And I went in there to help a girlfriend lose weight and she took speed and they hired me. How did that happen? <laughs> How did this happen, right? I wasn't trying to join a gym. I laughed at people in the gym. What are people spending money to work out? Make it work out at home in front of Jacqueline. Yeah. They hired me. I started running. One of the calisthenic instructors went around the corner to this place called Sports Training Institute, which was the very first personal training in the United States. And they catered to elite athletes. And that's, I went around actually to flirt with a gentleman, started working out. The gentleman offered to train me uh, because it was so, uh, it cost such a, such a bit. And here I am, one of the first female personal trainers in the United States, simply on going around to look at a guy's legs. I went to, <laughs> I went yeah. to look at his thighs. Inspired legs. action, Cozy. Inspired action. And so the gentleman who owned it, uh, Mike O'Shea, he said to me one day, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who works out this hard without a contract. He says, why don't you let me train you to be a personal trainer? You can train my clients and you can continue to work out here. Well, that just opened up a world that I could never have uh, imagined. Um, and the, the athletes came in there and 
They were kind and we had the best of the best, the newscast, you name it, Jim, they came into this gym. And yes, I am honored to say that Billie Jean King chose me out of all the trainers in the gym to train her personally on Sunday. Wow. Now, how old were you at this point in your life? I was 20, 24, 23 or 24. Okay. And after high school, talk about your, your study experience. Where did you go um, as far as that in that direction? Because now you're talking, now you've got this career basically and, and you've got this education as well, right? I, I initially went to junior college, uh, went in for legal secretarial. You'll love that. Uh, I asked my high school counselor, what pays the most money? And she said legal secretaries. And I figured we're always going to have criminals. <laughs> Listen. Right you know? so far. <laughs> and we're always going to need typists. Didn't matter if it's a computer, right? This is, this is a 17-year-old with this mindset. So I went to college. It's two-year school. I came out in two years. I didn't understand why people were in there for four, but that's their business. <laughs> I worked uh, for William Morris for a year, but they paid no money. And it never dawned on me where I was. It took me 20 years to realize what William Morris was. Oh. <laughs> As I worked in the playwright division, I met Tommy Toon. I met Twiggy. I went to plays. I took a uh, Sybil Shepherd was starting her career. Let's go that far back. Wow. Oh, uh, um, uh, oh my God. Ron from Super Super, Super Spy or what Superfly. All of these people were coming about. They come in the office, they're on the elevator with me. Again, I don't care. I'm there for, I needed credits to finish school. Came out of there. They weren't paying enough money. Didn't realize where I was and what my capabilities were. I went back to college and I got a degree in education and teach English. And did you teach English? No, because I was making more <clears throat> money as a legal secretary. Yes. And a trainer on the side, right? Then you, you... No, no, I had not okay. started training. I started training. When I started training, I just finished college. Oh, Okay. That just, that just all melded together. Finished college. I worked for an Israeli law firm, the first Israeli law firm in New York City at the time. It was called Shaboleth Roberts and Zellermeyer. And he hired me because I could say Shaboleth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, so good. He, he hired me because I was capable. He hired me because I was cute. I know all this crap. But, I was, but as the time went by and they treated me so wonderfully and it was a great experience, he said to me, you walked in and you can say Shibboleth, Robertson, Zellermont. Well, you know, I don't know about other people. I speak English. That's beautiful. When, when, you were, when you were growing up, were you always this outgoing and confident and had this mindset of, like you said, you know, at 13, you thought this and at 17, you thought that. Was that just something that was genetically ingrained to you or did you have mentors from your parents that came straight from god huh man it's unique it's unique and beautiful and so you're combining these skills now you're starting to see where your personality and the wisdom that you're gaining your strength of character you're seeing how it's making a difference so you're you're training people you're doing legal secretary work you're going through this you're now a an elite bodybuilder an elite trainer at some point in time you also realize that you have this beautiful sense of sharing a message that can make people smile and you go into the comedian world 
tell me about that. How did, where did that come from? What did you get from that process and that part of your life? And I know you still, you still engage in, incorporate that into what you're currently doing. So give me that part of your, your past. Most, not most, all of what I am and have become, Jim, and I smile about it, came from other people seeing it in, in me. Uh, again, I was making huge money at the number one, here we go again, number one litigation law firm in, New York, in Los Angeles, and I'll give them because they deserve it, uh, called Lavely and Singer. And they hired me, they trained me, my brain went in a whole nother direction. Um, and at that time I was bodybuilding. I started bodybuilding, here it goes dropping names again. I was working for HBO and they knew my athleticism and they were gonna do a special on Lisa Lyons. Wow, my brain is really in gear. And they told me to watch it. And I went home that evening and I watched this show and my boyfriend called and he said, that's your sport. And I was sitting there thinking the same thing because I'm strong. And he did. He called. He said, that's your sport. I started training the next morning with this woman named Donna. <laughs> I started lifting weights the very next morning at 6 a.m. And I've been lifting weights since 1980. Oh, so beautiful. Right? It was amazing. So I took that. I got hired from the first uh, a female bodybuilding gym in New York City. Uh, because the gentleman knew me from working out in the male gym because they didn't have any. And I would change inside of a, a utility closet, which I thought was so awesome. <laughs> I'm in there changing clothes with the mops and the brooms. And then I'd go on the floor and these gentlemen were so kind to me. You know, here's what I, I see. When people see you want it, they help you get it. Wow, that's a great, great axiom. When people see you want it, they help they you get it. It's like, it's like the, the universe or God smiles on you when you put, take the first step or put out the effort. Yes, and, and, and my life story has been, people have seen I've wanted it, and they said, come on, let me help you get it. Moved to LA in 81, I saw one bodybuilding show in, um, oh, I can't think of the name of the theater, and it was down the street from my house. And it was a guy, Robbie Robinson. Oh my God, I thought he was so sexy. Um, didn't have never seen bodybuilding before. I never saw any in New York City. Now I work for HBO. I do their very first transponder agreement. One of the attorneys from Los Angeles says, why don't you move to LA? We could use good legal secretaries like you. I said to myself, there's got to be great legal secretaries in Los Angeles. This gentleman went back to LA and sent me on his own time, six different law firms to interview with. I went, got there on a Wednesday, opened up a newspaper Thursday morning, saw this position that was paying $5,000 more than I was getting in New York City, got hired on a deposition break by one of the number one heaviest litigators in Los Angeles, a gentleman who's now passed away named Ed Medvin, and he hired me in 15 minutes. Wow, so you just impressed him with your skills and your, your knowledge and your personality. He just saw this was the right fit for us. He hired a woman from Philadelphia to come in and interview me because he was going through secretaries and I now know why. But um, she hired me. So now understand I had six interviews and now I'm hired and I've got two weeks to party in Los Angeles and go to the beach and meet new people and, and enjoy the rest of my vacation. 
Yes. He told me to go to the law firm and let the office manager, human resources, know I was hired. I'm sitting out on the bench in the hallway. They tell her, you know, Cozy Stone is here. And she says, tell her she's a day early. I said, tell her I'm hired. <laughs> is, that, is that just remarkable? So I go into Gold's Gym. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's ooh. So I can say, and you got there. And the first day I walk in, this guy, Robbie Robinson, and it's it's uh, mid afternoon, so it's not crowded like it is morning and night. I asked him, "Can I walk through?" They said yes. And over here on this bench is this one person I've ever seen uh, on stage in New York City. And I walked over to him, and I said, "Are you Robbie Robinson?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "Can I tell you? I think you're the sexiest bodybuilder I've ever seen." Well, Robbie is as black as a blueberry, right? Or blackberry. And you what? I watched him turn red. You did? I did. I meant it. And That's... I just said it and I kept walking. Oh, that was it. They just say it and away you go. Yeah. And we became good buddies. And he said, I'll never forget you walking in his gym and walking straight at me. And uh, I went in there. I was told I had good form because I had a Greek gentleman, Taki who started me off and taught me correctly. And then I went into goals and people were staring. And I asked this good friend of mine, why are they staring? I don't know it wasn't my hair. He said, because your form is, 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 is unreal. You've got some of the best form that we've ever seen. And I just took it and ran with it. And then I started competing and, uh, and I love it because again, I like, I like, I love being strong. Um, I had no idea my body was gonna develop the way it was. But again, one and one makes two. I learned how to eat clean. I learned the difference in being lean and being skinny. You know, who wants to be skinny? Uh, I learned, I asked questions, uh, give another shout out to Charles Glass. We call him the godfather of bodybuilding. And Charles took a liking to me and we became buddies and he would give tidbits and, and he trained me one time. I couldn't walk for two days. I hated him. Mm. Then he said to me, you have no idea how strong you are. None. He said, let me show you. <laughs> and then that just created a monster. Wow. And what a beautiful monster it is, Cozy Stone. I love it so much. Hey, I want to jump back into the comedian thing. Tell me about that, that backstory and, and what you got from that. Why you went into that in the first place? I, again, and I started. So let me go back into where I was. Again, everything that I've done, someone suggested. So I kept hearing, why don't you do comedy? Why don't you do comedy? Why don't you get in sales? Why don't you get down there? Why don't you do comedy? People leave me alone. I'm happy as a legal secretary, having fun and doing my thing. Yeah. And um, eventually I had my own gym in, in, a, in a rec room, actually in my condo. And my clients kept saying it. They kept saying it. So finally I decided, what the heck? And I went to a, uh, it was a Japanese restaurant. And I don't know if you know, I love sushi. Um, I was a mother goose character and I bought a $500 rocking chair, <laughs> turned it upside down on my Miata, dressed in full mother goose outfit because I didn't want anybody to see what I looked like because I was, I had a potty mouth. My first show, I was the opener. Oh. How does that happen? <clears throat> yeah. I'll tell you how it happens. I have 40 friends there. So you fill the gate, you get to steal the show. I told my friends, come in, let's everybody get there early. I go on and we get back home because I got to get gym the next day. Da, 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 da. And they said, no, 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 we can't let you in. Why? Because you're going to take 40 people with you. 
And these 40 people are drinking and eating. And that's when I understood the business aspect of, mm. of a comedy show. Uh, Jay Leno's writer was on that show, stole my material. And the next day he told my jokes on Jay Leno. Are you kidding me right now? True story. And wow. I called Jay Leno's office and I used to be called Mother Goose. And I said to Jay, I said, whoever tell Jay Leno that Mother Goose is on the phone and he stole my jokes last night. His writer stole my jokes. What happened? I left it alone. I just needed it to be said. The yeah. guy lost his job, but I have no idea why. So I'm not going to put those together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to Vegas um, and decided why not do it full time. Vegas was growing with comedians, lots of open mics. And I started doing open mics, started developing a, 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 a crowd of people who loved me. One day, a guy guy said something I didn't particularly like. And another friend who just passed, she says, here you go again, Jim. She says, why don't you get your own place? Think about having my own show. I just want to do comedy. And I got in touch with this, my great friend, Tommy Rocker. um, And I called him. He took his time calling me back. But when he did, I was in there for 11 years, Cozy's Comedy Corner. I've uh, put over 100 comedians on stage. And many of them right now are doing well. That's wonderful. What did you get most from that? Did that did comedy fill your soul? Was it an outlet? Was it a creative way to, to put material together? Like, what did that bring to you that the other side of either training or legal assistant work maybe didn't didn't bring in your life? Jim, there were no holes in my life. I don't know if I've ever had any holes in my life. Um, I guess you can think of my life as a Lego. One part fit on the other, the other part fit on the other. I loved, when I was a legal secretary and people used to ask me if I was in sales, I really was insulted because I always thought of sales as a car salesman. I was great at my job. They paid me well and I endured the gentleman I worked with. When I got into sales, I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I learned something new. Um, I've always been funny. So comedy, it was a pleasure giving other comedians an opportunity because at that time, a lot of the comedy open mics were only giving them, and they may still, three to five minutes. Well, I did an hour on my first show. So what I offered, I believe, to most of the comedians, I'd say, how many funny minutes do you have? And that's how many I'm going to give you. That's amazing. I'll bet you were the talk of the town. People love that, right? It gives them a chance to give their best stuff. And they started telling others. And as I said, we had a very successful place. But in terms of did it fulfill anything, comedy will never feel better to me than lifting weights. Uh, Now, you know, I'm an avid pickleball player. And pickleball is not better now that I can't play right now. Playing pickleball is is not better than lifting weights. Lifting weights is not better than pickleball. Making people laugh is not better than lifting weights and pickleball. None of it, it's all a great life. And now you're taking what you built in humor and with your education background, and you've coined this term humor, I wanna make sure I say it right, humor, va- humorvational speaking, right? Because at this point now, now what you're doing is you're, you're, you've brought all this experience and this skill together and you wanna help kids and parents as kids are going through what is tumultuous times and and so share a little bit about what you're doing now with with that and what humorvational speaking is so we know i'm a motivator motivational speaker but i go into the schools and if you want to 
almost have any audience pay attention, humor has got to be involved. And, and again, because I'm a comedian and I'm a motivational speaker, I just put together the two together and the kids love it. I, 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 <laughs> I'm just not the serious person. They said, Cozy, you don't come in and you're not the, the serious speaker. No, no, no. So humorational speaking, and you're absolutely correct. The world has changed like none of us or us seniors could ever have imagined. Uh, children always need, we all need to be a village to help uh, children. But I just believe today more than others. And once the shooting started happening, it just, it just broke my heart. Um, parents seem to be a little more neglectful, seem to be a little less, a little more negligent. And I think it's my job as well as any and all of our jobs to be responsible for our future. And how do you do that? What's the message that you give? So if you go into a school or a group of kids, what is your basic theme and, and how do you go about incorporating humor into that? I, um, I have seven questions that I ask. When I first started, <laughs> the teachers were panicked because remember George Carlin had seven words? Yes. So I say, I have seven words. I'd look at the teacher and I knew how old they were. And I'd say, it's not those words. So uh, I have the seven words that we start off with. They define those. I have an exercise that I do. I make it very clear that everyone's going to respect me and we're going to respect each other. Everyone in here is going to speak. So you can raise your hand or you can ask to have me ask for you. And then I do an exercise that takes them through the reality of life as they know it as middle school children. I explain growing up, being respectful, being responsible, how very, very important an education is. I love saying to kids, no matter what you do in life, if you get your education, you may not always be right, but at least you can speak up for what you know. I just wanna be a part of, you know, we hear the expression all the time, be a part of the change that you want to see. I want to be a part of the change that I want to see. That I is, believe, I believe in children because someone believed in me. I was given a chance. I want to try as much as I can to give kids, because they all deserve a chance. And they, someone may not even know it. Um, that's my message. I'm good at it. I love it. And yes, I'm silly as you can imagine. Uh, and I start off very serious to get their attention. And then I'm pleasant and I'm engaging. And, and more importantly, I get them to talk. You want to hear what kids are thinking. You want to know what's going on in their life. Ask a child, say, in a low-income uh, community, ask them what they don't want to be in life. You'll get more answers than if you ask them what they want to be. Wow. That's something for people listening and watching. I hope you're paying attention to that very moment. That's a seminal moment in the show where Cozy says, ask them what they don't want, what they don't want to see, want to feel, want to experience, and you'll get more than them telling you what they do want. And I think Cozy, part of that might be because they don't know what they want. If they have, especially, and I don't know what, if your, if your average audience is a middle school, and socioeconomically challenged or middle class or upper class. I don't know, you know we haven't even gotten that yet, but if, if, it's, if it's someone that hasn't seen through their own experience anything other than a certain level of success or, or living, it's hard for them to even think that's part of their reality. So you helping them identify what they don't want 
you know the opposite is going to be better and the opposite is really good. Is that kind of how you go about that? Well, here's, here's what you're missing. When you ask them what they don't want to be and they tell you that is the environment they're in right now. So wow. when a kid says to you, I don't want to clean pools, I don't want to clean homes, I don't want to sell drugs, I don't want to be a teenage pregnant, I don't want to be an attorney. It's not just middle, uh, uh, lower income children who watch the neglect. I worked with lawyers for 12 years. I can't tell you how many times their wives bought their suits up to go to, a, go to an opera or go to a play. How many games do you miss because you have to do a pleading? How much time do you have to go to work in the office in the morning at six o'clock and maybe you get back home at nine o'clock at night? Oh yeah, you make six figures. And yes, your kid's going to private school, but your kid's not necessarily getting you. And people want to think, oh, because they've got a lot of money, they just have more expensive clothes. Doesn't mean they're getting time and attention from their parents. And I worked in a very high income school when I was in Denver and I got those answers. Wow. And yeah. we, when you got those answers, did, were you able to at all connect with the parents and or just the kids to say, hey, listen, if this is what you're looking for, this is where you have to go. How, how did you go about trying to bridge that? No, not, not the parents. Uh, again, I was in middle school. I love middle school. I really only want to talk to middle school kids. And um, we had a, the parents came in to meet me in this high income school in Denver. And it was one woman that just did not want me in the front of her kids. She did not like want me, right? For all of her reasons. When they, when they uh, put the kids in the front of me, first day I knew who her, who her son was. And so at the end of my first session, I went over to the teacher who brought me in and I said, he belongs to her, doesn't he? You can see the disrespect all over his face. His mother said to him, you don't have to listen to her. She's not going to make a difference in your life. She told him every reason why he did not need to be respectful. He was going to be respectful. He didn't participate and I didn't care. And that's the first, probably first kid that I said, that's what you and your mom want to do. I, I will respect that. But there were so many other kids that were so involved and they, they fought to sit in the front of me. It was, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling the reaction that I get from children um, and animals, by the way. Mm. I think they see my heart. Yeah. Well, your heart beams out of you, Cozy. You can't help but see it. If you talk to you or see you for more than a minute, you, you get it. And, and so I had the great pleasure to be on your podcast, which is trying to have an influence, a positive influence and a positive impact on parents. Share, share with this audience a little bit about what you're doing and, and your intention behind that. Because obviously it's to serve the kids, because if you have crappy parenting skills or your crappy parents, your kids are at a disadvantage. So, so give our audience a little bit about uh, what that thing is that you're creating and working on. Well, it's not as much to create uh, to for the kids, Jim. It's more for young people, young women, more, more, more specifically, who are having irresponsible sex. And I say it jokingly, but not jokingly. I'm not preaching abstinence. I'm not. Uh, what I'm trying to suggest is responsibility. So again, back to the schools and put this, this program together. I'd like to think I'm a wedge between in the schools, what the teachers don't have time to give and what some of the parents just are not giving. 
So on my Cozy Up and Pay Attention, my parent edition, I am showcasing and promoting and applauding great parenting. Mm. We see the kids who are taking lives. The media shows all kind of negative stuff. Why isn't a show like mine on HBO or, or CBS? Why don't I have a 30-minute show where parents can see other parents and say, yeah, it is mind-boggling, but Jesus, yes, I got to do it. I got to do it. You have to do homework. You need to take those phones away from them before they go into their rooms. You have to look at their homeworks. You, you have to feed them and think nutritionally. And even if you don't, you have to feed them. You, you have to go to parent-teacher meetings. You have to teach them to say please and thank you. You must. Mm. It's, called, it's called societal laws. It's what separates us from the animals. And it's, and it's, we all need it. We need to be kind to each other. And if you're not teaching your kids these things, that's when we hear this bullying and all. They're not bullies. They just don't know better. Yeah. Yeah. And are, are you finding good traction? You getting good feedback from the, the folks that are watching and listening in your show? I know I had a great time uh, when you and I got to do that a couple of weeks ago. And, and uh, I just, I just, I hope that people are getting the message through your vehicle because it's it's fascinating and it's fantastic all at the same time. But and again, it's not me, it's you and all the parents. We just did our 30th show uh, this past Tuesday. Congrats. It's your message. I'm just the vehicle. I'm asking you the questions and you're providing the information that these parents, these children, whomever needs. Why? Because you've already done the work. You already have the responsible adults, as I like to say. You've already raised them. You are seeing the benefit of your labor. And, mm. it's, a lot of, and it's a lot of labor. It's a lot of love. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot, a lot of. Yes. And you, what are you getting from it, Cozy? What are you personally getting from this part of your journey where you're, where you're doing your best to impact children and now impact young women and young parents to do these right things? What does it bring to the amazing Cozy Stone? Everything I do brings me joy to know uh, at the end of my day, or as I like to say, when the sun sets on my life, I have made a difference. I have brought joy. I have brought knowledge. I have brought love. I have given my all to this one time that he has given me. Oh, Cozy, that just gave me chills. And you know what, I have, to, I have to now circle into a totally different direction for just a minute because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this other piece of your, um, of your history, which I didn't know actually, I didn't realize it until yesterday. Maybe you'd shared this with me as we were working together, but you developed a sports bra that's very, very comfortable. I was looking at, not that I know, by the way, I don't know that it's comfortable, but I was looking at some of the reviews of people who had, had worn it. And so where did that come from? Like everything we've talked about has been so relational, so personal, so all about connecting one-to-one -one and with your body and yourself. Now you create this garment. It, number one, are you still doing that? And number two, tell me about the, the, the fundamental starting of that piece. That is my biggest heartbreak, Jim. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. It took away my life. It took my heart. It took everything I owned. 
it rendered me homeless. I had a gym. I started a gym in Los Angeles when I came from corporate and decided I can't work for corporate anymore. It's a different workplace. The uh, HOA was kind enough to allow me to use our rec room when I was still living in LA. And I started training. Specifically, I wanted Black women because I wanted to get them out of doctor's office. At the end of the day, I had everybody, but that was my target audience. The high blood pressure, the sugar, da, 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 da. Um, they came in and they had rest. Now, <laughs> Jesus Christ, oh, Lordy. And, and most morning, most days or whatever, someone would come in and say, God, I can't find a sports bra. Or some of them who were well endowed, <laughs> excuse me, would have to put on two. And what I call is fighting the bear to get off and get it out. Because once it sweats and that, that, that material rolls, now you're, you know, you have to be a gymnast to get out of this thing. And I kept hearing it. I kept hearing it again, paying attention. And I went upstairs one day. God, I wish what I know what we're talking about. I'd show it to you. And I designed this product. And I have it right now. And I went to LA, uh, found a manufacturer, uh, found the material, found uh, someone to draw it or make it on me with, with copy paper and tape. Uh, found a manufacturer, had two buddies who came through to try to help uh, get me started, but no one ever came up with enough money uh, to market it. And at the end of the day, the, the uh, recession kicked in. And I'm also living in LA. I'm entitled to believe, had I been living in Los Angeles, I'd have had a, more success only because anybody and everybody worked out in Gold's Gym and I knew them. So it's who you know, not what you know. And here, I didn't have that kind of uh, relationships. I live in a city where, not knocking the city, but it's a drinking city. It's not known for its weight, uh, or it's a whole lot of weight here. But it just did not fit the time frame. It's probably more than anything. The, the, the uh, inflation, uh, the lack of people who are going to the beach every day, right, and have those kind of bodies. And it just took my heart. It took every cent I owned. It took, um, I'm putting out, putting out, nothing was coming in. I don't have the best business sense. I put that out there because it's honest. And what I later found out, and you probably know this better than I do, anything you want to, to promote from these glasses to these earrings, you have to have advertising. And advertising, you probably need to start off with at least a million dollars. Right. So if yeah. no one knows you have a product. Now, we made 500 of them. I sold about 350 out the trunk of my Miata. Wow. Right. And I have it on and they're perfect. I still have 30 some left. Um, and I still think it's the best product that's ever. I've been in gym for 59 years. This is a great sports bra. It's best. Then I met a gentleman who was bodybuilding and he says, why are you selling this to women? I need to sweat. It's neoprene and nylon, right? So it helps you stay warm. When it's cold, you can put it on and go to the store, ladies. You, uh, for women who don't perspire, it helps you get that, those, uh, those uh, it helps you perspire. Um, it's long, it's short, it cover. it's, I did a great job. And I'm very proud of it that somewhere in the world, <laughs> some 300 people walking around, if they're still wearing it with my name on their chest, and here again, I tried and I didn't fail. I did it. 
You completed the you completed the mission, Cozy. This this brings up something that I really want to um, ask you because all I've ever known from you is accomplishment, achievement, except in two times. One of which I just learned right now, and so we'll go into to both of those things. But because anyone listening and watching have seen that you have this incredible positive outlook, you have expectation, you have vision of things working out well. When it doesn't work out well. How did, how did you get beyond that? Because like you said, it took everything. It took your heart and your finances. How, how did you navigate that in order to get back to a sense of, man, life is okay again? Or, or did, it, did it always stay okay regardless of the circumstances? No, no. That, that product took my heart. It took my heart. It took my guts. As I said, it rendered me homeless uh, for the second time, by the way. That's wow. how... That's how you met me in Denver. I had a, what was <laughs> a buddy inviting me out. Um, I couldn't pay, I couldn't eat, I was eating oatmeal. Uh, my car broke down, good old Dale Brown took care of my car for me. Um, I was down and out. I was one, one quarter away from a, uh, a shopping cart. Mm. So, it wasn't easy. It was uh, because I've got so much pride and I have had so much success. It feels terrible to not be able to pay your your, your bills or your car note or get your car fixed or eat. Um, I had friends who would, um, you know, give me, help me out when they could. That's embarrassing. I'm a grown woman with a whole lot of skills and a whole lot of success. So moved to Denver, <laughs> moved in with what was not a friend, but God bless her. If she's listening or sees this, God bless her. Uh, she did give me a roof over my head and um, <laughs> living in Littleton, which I didn't know there were no black people. So that was funny. <laughs> no black people in Littleton. So very nice neighborhood. One day I'm walking a park outside of Macaroni Grill, me and uh, this woman, Teresa. Because they, you know, as you know, there's so many lakes or parks in Denver. Beautiful place, right? And just on general principle, and all I can say, it's the man upstairs. And he said, "Why don't you go in there and see if they they need? Uh, you could be a waitress. I've never been a waitress in my life." Walked in there, holy nasty, sweaty gym clothes, and I said to the uh, manager, "I need a job." Or I think I said, "I'm looking for a job." And uh, I have more personality than you'll ever have money. But <laughs> I told this guy, his name is Aaron, never seen in my life. And he said, well, can you fill out an app? As he's walking away, I watched him look me up and down, Jim, like, is she really coming here looking like that? And they hired me. And they hired me and they made me a uh, hostess. And I started hearing all these little creepy youngins talk about how much money they made every night. And I'm not making that kind of money. Mm -hmm. I bypassed my managers who didn't want to respect my, my, my potential because they loved me up there at that desk, right? And I went to their manager, this little lady named Lisa, who when she was in the building, you could tell all those men, she just went around just putting all their penises in her hands. <laughs> broad and I respected her walking in there and they're all fearful and I walked in and you can tell when I walk in for my shift I knew Lisa was in the building 
And I went over and I said, do you have a moment? I gave her my background and I said, I need more money and I can do this. She told them that night to give me tables. They were not happy. And there was one lady, Elsa, who was my daughter and my friend. They didn't want to help me. Uh, they were not nice to me, those kids. Um, and I took off at the speed of sound and I made a whole, 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 whole lot of money. Mm, that's a whole lot of tips and developed a lot of relationships. Started doing comedy. My customers started coming to my comedy. So you can't keep me down. Not, no. if, you get, not if you give me an opportunity. Well, and I listen, that I want to serve tables. My mother, right. my mother sent me to college serving tables. She did not send me to college to serve tables, but I needed money. That's impressive. You did what you had to do. And, and I know the other big thing I watched you overcome was when you got in the car accident that introduced us. And I remember, I'll never forget it, you sitting across from me and you saying, hey, I need someone and I choose you guys. And because you and I were talking, I'm not even an attorney, but you said, I'm trusting you. And because, you, like you've said so many times throughout this, this show that people believing in you made you do better, you charging me to watch out for you Sister, I was always watching out for you. Even though I didn't do one part of your case, you know, I made sure that everything was, was as it needed to be. Whenever something came up, it was you and I had the chance to talk about it. I'm so glad that I had a chance to meet you and watch you come through that because, man, those were tough days of the injuries that you experienced and the care that you had to get and, and you know, the story of, of your life that that created right there was, it was tough for me to watch, but watching you overcome it was truly, truly inspirational for me. No one, uh, I don't care who they are, I don't know how, I don't care how big their income is or what their, how big their name is on a billboard. No one does it alone. We all need someone at some point to, to help us and to be in our corner. To have someone in your corner, I'm getting emotional, is strong. Everybody doesn't care. God sends me people who care about me. And I feel blessed and honored. And I looked in that room. I know I had great attorneys because the woman who recommended you guys. So I was confident in that. I knew I was, you guys were going to serve me well. But a, law, a lawsuit is, <laughs> is a business matter. I don't care what people think. We know it's business. And once I sat there and listened, and I said, oh, my God, I just want this to be over. Well, as you know, it cannot be over overnight once you start litigating. And I sat in that room and I looked around. You have um, sort of a personality of someone who I love who hired me in sales. His name is James Horner. And you have a James Horner feel. And James Horner has been in my life. Blah, 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 blah. 40 years almost now. And he was a kid who hired me. He was just graduating from USC. And he had that feel to me. And we have been like this ever since. You had, <laughs> you had the James Horner characteristics. Hmm. And I left out of that room and I said, hmm, that guy will be my buddy. He'll help me. I had no friends, I had no family, I had no idea what this new, something new to learn. And I need to trust someone. You, and I've worked in law. And, and we hear about lawyers. Da, 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 da. 
and I'm not dumb. So I wasn't going to be used. I wasn't going to be, uh, you weren't going to, no one was going to talk over me, talk around me, get me to do things that didn't make sense to me. But then I had you to confirm, to reinforce, to be there for me. And I'm grateful. And I just did my comedy show, my one woman comedy show called Happy and Grateful. And I am, I am so grateful. I'm so appreciative. My life could have gone, who only knows how many ways? Who knows? I've seen other lives similar, but it didn't. And yes, I am 70 years old and since December 21st. And I can't stop counting my blessings. How do you like that? I love it. I love it. And you know what? Here, there's I, this has been such an incredible show, Cozy. I could talk with you for days. And and I want to ask you one final question. And okay. it's something that I think is important. And I ask all our guests this. <clears throat> I'm especially interested in your answer, given everything we've talked about already. Is there one piece of advice that you either learned along the way that has helped you become the, the amazing human being that you are today or someone passed along to you that you'd be willing to share with me and with our audience? I think there are two things. Number one, always ask. Always ask for what you want. You could get a no, but you'll get nothing if you don't ask. The other thing as I matured and this I've had in me for a long time, <laughs> Learn how to say no. That's a big one. So ask for what you want. And when people are asking more of you, learn how to say no. Their life will go on also. Those are two incredible pieces of gold wisdom, my dear. And final thing, if someone wanted to reach out to you to learn more about you, to have you come do a, a comedy show for them, to speak to their audiences, to buy your sports bra, or even invest in it to make sure that that thing goes to where it deserves to go, how would they get a hold of you, Cozy, to, to just learn more about you or to connect with you? Well, if to learn more about me, you can go to uh, IamCozyStone.net is my website, and there are great testimonials that I'm proud of on there. To get in direct contact with me, cozy up and pay attention at gmail.com, uh, 702-860-7619 uh, directly. Um, and if you want to be on my show, and remember, we didn't talk about my books. I have two self-published books. Oh, yes. Throw those out there. Shameless plug. Get those out there. T talk about the two books. This is shameless. There's nothing shameless about me. <laughs> I am not ashamed. Cozy up, I mean, on Amazon, Cozyism, C-O-Z-Y-I-S-M-S, -S, the art of paying attention, first rule in life, and that, I believe, first rule in life. Thank you, Jim. Oh, man, Cozy, this has been a treat, and I just wish you were here for me to give you that big squeeze, but we're going to do it. I know you talked about coming out there, and, and you know, uh, we're going to try to get out to Vegas, too, and so... I definitely want to make a plan for us to be in person, but the more we talk, the happier I am. So I can't thank you enough for being on the show and I wish you continued love, joy, health, and all the best things in life, my friend. Thank you. I'm going to pump some iron. Yeah. And I'll speak with you soon. Okay, look forward to it. I love you. I love you too. Bye-bye.